From the abundant marine life found in the cold Atlantic Ocean to the incredible diversity found in the warm waters of the Indian Ocean, South Africa's coastline is unique in many ways. In this episode, passionate marine biologist Pavs Pillay shares stories about the animals that inhabit our ocean, from spectacular whales and sharks to the charming penguins and turtles. This podcast is brought to you by Leopard, your guide to tailor-made travel in Southern Africa. To find out more about what we do at Leopard, visit leopard.voyage. The theme of this podcast series is the incredible diversity found in South Africa. Other episodes are focused on land-based experiences, but in this episode, we get to talk about the incredible diversity in our oceans and on our beaches. Pavs, it's hard to know where to start. We have 3,000 kilometers of coastline in South Africa. Um, I suppose a unique aspect of our coastline is that it's divided into the Atlantic Ocean on the west of the country and the Indian Ocean on the east coast. And these two oceans meet at Cape Agullis. Um, What do the two oceans mean for marine life on the east coast versus the west coast? Thanks, Anna. We are very privileged. We actually, in fact, have three oceans. Uh, The third one being the Southern Ocean, which is just outside of our economic exclusion zone, and it heads all the way down to Antarctica. But the one that most often, the two that we most often speak about is the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. And these two currents are unbelievably unique because one is ice cold (laughs) but is highly highly rich in nutrients and that's the Benguela current that comes down on the Atlantic side and that comes basically almost travels in a northward direction so it goes from south to north then on the other side we have this very warm 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 current that comes down past Mozambique in the Indian Ocean and we call that the Agulhas current and if you speak to my Portuguese colleagues they'll probably laugh at you and say it's actually called Agulhas current and Benguela current, because they both come from Portuguese history. And because one is basically freezing cold, but nutrient rich, its diversity is based on abundance. So we have fewer species there, but rich abundance. So lots and lots of sardine, lots of hake, lots of snook. On the East Coast, you have this warm water, but it's nutrient poor. And warm water on the other side increases diversity, not abundance. So you have many different species, but not in great numbers. So there you'd have your coral reefs and your reef fish and your um, your species of sea bream and your eels and those kinds. Of, and when the two basically converge, you get this amazing warm, cold convergence of water. And there you get a kind of what we would call a temperate zone. And there you'd get a balance of, of the two, which is usually on our south coast. And then the third ocean, which a lot of people don't know about, but for me is one of the most interesting oceans, is the Southern Ocean. And that's where all our whales come to. And it's rich, rich, rich in nutrients, but it is very cold and has only things like very small species of fish. And then things like krill, Patagonian. So things that other things would come to eat. So you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't get large animals staying there for long periods of time. But then you get things like the emperor penguins further south and that they enjoy the Southern the Southern Ocean, the the unique property of the Southern Ocean, unlike the Indian and the and the uh, Atlantic, is that the Southern Ocean is our biggest carbon sink. Mm. So that ocean is the reason why we remove 
the oceans remove so much carbon dioxide out of our atmosphere. Now that we call, it's a very fancy word, it's called sequestration, but it's literally just the oceans locking the carbon dioxide into an organism and then sinking it to the bottom of the ocean. So the Southern Ocean is actually pivotal when it comes to climate change. But those three unique bits of sea, as we'd like to call them, make uh, give us a very privileged view of an ocean being based at the tip of Africa. And we're very fortunate because we, we're not large expanses of land. You can travel to both oceans quite easily and enjoy the richness that both oceans give you. So, so interesting, Pubs. That's, uh, that's really fascinating um, how you've described the, the different diversity in the, the three oceans. Um, you're based in Cape Town, so you're actually within easy access of some of our best marine attractions in South Africa. In the Western Cape, we have the world-renowned whale-watching town of Hermanus, and we've got great white shark cage diving in Khanspai, and also the famous penguin colony at Boulders Beach. Do you have a favorite between these three marine species? It's such a tough, it's such a tough ask. I mean, being a trained marine biologist, I have such an affinity to anything that comes of the ocean and is in the ocean. So, you know, if I'm pondering on this question, I would probably have to go with the penguin. Uh, you know, it is such an iconic species. It is beautiful. It makes this amazing, wonderful sound. They are so charismatic, you know, just visiting them, watching them waddle around. Their loyalty to partnership is another thing that I find fascinating. Their, 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 their social knit in terms of a community of penguins, but also in terms of looking after their young and their fledglings. Um, you know, the, the fact that when you see, I don't know if you've ever seen penguins in water, they are so hydrodynamic. It's fascinating to watch them dart around, swim around. They're efficient, efficient feeders um, and hard workers. Yo, Penguins really, they take their time, they pick the right stone to make the right nest, they'll find the right spot, and they almost have this, this dance around each other um, in terms of communication, like, are you happy with the spot? Are you happy with these stones? Does this look like a good nest? Shall we, you know, and then they go about living their lives. So I would have to go with, with the penguin. Yeah, it's, one of, it's one of my favorites too. And all my clients who visit Cape Town are just blown away by the penguins. They just appeal. They're so charismatic. They really appeal to, to tourists. Um, which whale species can be spotted in Hermanus pubs? And why is it such a good place to observe these gentle giants? Yeah, they are gentle giants indeed, Diana. I, I mean, whales are just the most peaceful watching animals you can see. I think they, that's one of their best characteristics. And in South Africa, we are super fortunate because we get to see a few species. In Hermanus in particular, we get to see what is known as the Brider's whale. It's, a, it's not a popular one, but it's a much smaller whale than the other two, but it still belongs to the baleen family. Now, baleen family is important for people to understand because uh, all three species which are predominantly found in Hermanus, which is the Brider's whale, the humpback whale, and the southern right whale, um, are baleen species in that they don't have teeth. So they don't munch on fish. So what they actually do is they have these baleens which look like, they look like very big hairy toothbrushes that hang inside the mouth of a whale. And they're long plates, they're not, they're not short plates, so they would cover the entire jawline of a whale. And they've got these little bristles and they literally filter feed the water. And they take little microscopic zooplankton and phytoplankton and little baby fish, larvae and stuff like that. And that is what they feed on. So you'd see Brider's whales, which are baleen whales. You'll see the characteristic humpback whales. Now, 
We all know about humpback whales. They have the very small little dorsal fin at the back. And they, they're very characteristically the ones that spy, hop, and breach, and jump. And we see those beautiful, beautiful images of them, you know, catapulting into the air and then smashing down onto the water. And they are also very characteristic. They have what people often confuse as barnacles on their skin. But they're actually not barnacles. They're actually calluses that are part of the whale. And what's fascinating about that is they're unique to a particular individual. Oh, wow. I didn't know so that. So no two individuals. Yeah, it's like a fingerprint. Wow. No two individuals will have the same arrangement of calluses or the number of calluses or where the calluses are placed, etc. So very often scientists will use that to identify, oh, that's Molly, oh, that's Peter, the whale, because of the where the calluses and the, the shape of the dorsal fin. The last one is the southern right whale, and this whale is fascinating. It can live up to 100 years easily. And it's quite a big, it's one of the bigger baleens, so it's a, quite a big whale. And the sad story is about its name. I don't know if you know this, but it is called Southern Right because whalers used to believe it is the right whale to whale to kill because Southern Rights don't sink. Uh. They have a large buoyancy, so they float. So when you'd kill them, when a whaler would kill them, they would be easy to pull alongside the hauling of a vessel. Hence, they called it the Right Whale. So that name is actually trying to say the history. Um, the other thing as well about southern rights, if you know, is they have no dorsal fin, nothing. So very characteristically, when people look for whales and sharks, they look for a dorsal fin. But the southern right doesn't have a dorsal fin, uh, which makes it quite a unique whale, you know, um, and quite a beautiful whale. And obviously with the humpback and southern, we know how wonderfully they sing. So if you ever get a chance to listen to their singing, it is phenomenal. Uh, to listen to their voices. I mean, I can, you can only, we can only imagine what they're saying to each other, what long messages, you know, they're telling faraway oceans, what stories. I, I guess your imagination can run away with you when it comes to what they're actually talking about. Um, you know, but those are predominantly the types of whales that you would see in Hermanus. And they come into Hermanus because the water's kind of what they would pretty much enjoy. So it's not too cold, it's not too warm. As you said, that's probably where the convolution of the two oceans comes in. And also those bays are deep enough for these animals to come in and, and kind of come into coast and then they go off to Antarctica where they feed. I've actually seen them just so, you know, from the from the land in Hermanus, which I think is also quite, quite unique and interesting. You don't have to take a, a boat trip out to see the whales. Yeah, yeah, no, you don't. And, and the history... Sorry, we might be going on a bit, but the history in Hermanus is quite amazing because they actually have a whale crier and he dresses up in traditional gear, uh, like you would have a town crier. You have a whale crier, he dresses up in traditional gear and he stands out on the rocks when the pods come in and he, he calls, he calls people to say, come and see the whales have arrived and, you know, it's a bit of fanfare and things like that. So it is a long tradition of, of actually viewing those gentle giants in Hermanus. Just to go back to the penguins for a moment, Pavs, uh, their numbers are actually in decline, African penguins. Um, why is that and what can we do to help them? Yeah, so Diana, the penguins is actually quite a sad story. First of all, it's the only endemic penguin on this continent. There are no other penguins on, Af on the African continent but our African penguin. Um, it is endemic means it can be found no one else. It's very characteristic in, in its coloring, and the way it wears a little tuxedo jacket. I mean, you know, you've seen tons of animation around that. But it is also a very 
specific feeder. So it, it doesn't eat a wide range of species. It predominantly eats sardine and anchovy. Now, sardine and anchovy, as you know, is also something that human beings love to eat. And we have one of the most valuable fisheries that removes sardine and anchovy. So one of the biggest drivers for the decline in seafood is the fact that their food availability is not so readily around. So there's been a decrease in sardine and anchovy, and as a result, there's been a decrease in um, penguins. But not to say there's a direct correlation between the fishery taking fish out, it's just that the resource has shrunk. So there's less sardine in the water, which means there's less accessibility for the penguins. And you must remember, penguins don't fly. So they're, they're reliant on swimming from a colony, which is very, it's, it uses a lot of energy. Just think about when, when we as humans try and swim far distances. And remember, you're not swimming in a swimming pool, you're swimming in the ocean. So there's predators to avoid, and there's choppy seas, and there's uncertainties, etc. So it's a lot of energy expenditure to go and kind of swim out and try and find food and come back, eat food that will sustain your own body, and then come back with a little bit of food that you feed the chicks. So that actual exercise, that life history trait, actually makes them very vulnerable when their food is not readily available. And as a result, immediately their numbers start declining. And then there are other things. Penguins are very susceptible to oiling. Even if there's just a little bit of oil in the water, um, they lose their waterproofing in their feathers, which means that when oil covers their feathers, um, they, they get cold because the waterproofing doesn't insulate them from the cold waters. So they get very, very cold. So they do one of two things. They either die from the cold or they don't go into the water because they're too cold, which means they starve on land. The other thing is plastic pollution. I mean, you know, penguins get themselves caught in fishing line. They get their, their flippers caught in fishing line. They get themselves stuck in little can holders, you know, your, your plastic can holders that hold six, six cans, those plastic rings. They get themselves in packaging tape. So that kind of pollution as well is really bad for them. And very often they'll ingest bits of plastic as well, which they won't even know they've ingested. Um, you know, the other, the, another threat which people don't actually realize is predation. I mean, penguins are eaten by um, other type of species of sharks, they're eaten by orca whales, they're eaten by seals, their eggs are predated by other seabirds like pelicans. So, you know, they have a lot of, of things going against them and then there's, there's things like climate change and then habitat. I mean, we build houses right onto the coast, not realizing that that's within a penguin nesting site. So there are all these different factors, and, and that's one of, I think that and along with food availability are some of the biggest reasons we're seeing the decline in penguins. And penguins are very sensitive to changes in the environment. So what we call in marine science, we, call, we would call a penguin an indicator species. So as soon as we see penguin numbers decline, we realize that the ecosystem is unhealthy and there's something wrong. So they're that indicator that tells you frogs are the same, Snakes are the same. As soon as you see those species decline or num increasing number of deaths or less reproduction or sh shrinking population sizes, you must know your, 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 your ecosystem is unhealthy. Um, you know, so, so that's a definite indicator. And all of those compound on these poor birds. And as a result, we've had some drastic declines in the last 10 years around penguins. We need to do something about it very seriously if we want to keep this very iconic species on our coast. There's also actually been a decline in great white shark sightings <clears throat> around Cape Town. Um, do you know the reason for this? And is it temporary? Yeah. I'm hoping it's temporary. I have to be honest with you. Um, because for several reasons, the, the 
sharks are such amazing animals they are top predators they they modulate and stabilize marine ecosystems so they're very very important to have in a, in a marine system you know if you think of uh, a marine ecosystem as a house think of the shark as your roof take away a roof and your house doesn't do much you know um, and in south africa we've always been fortunate in that we've always had quite a healthy shark great white shark population and it's developed industries i mean i think the shark cage dive industry is like worth two billion rand or million rand per annum, I think it's one of those numbers, and, and it supports homes, it supports families, livelihoods, fishers, all of that, you know. And in the recent years, we've seen two big things that have basically been the occurrence of the shark decline. The first one is two little scoundrels that have made their way into our water, and these are two little orcas. Now, we've never had orcas come in this close to our shores. And the reason we're speculating, there's lots of work being done by scientists as to why they're coming in, is because of climate change. Waters are changing, temperature, pHs are changing, and they are finding it more habitable to now come further inland. What's happening there is they, are, they have a free-for-all buffet because they've never predated. So the animals in that area are going, oh my goodness, look at these orcas. We don't know how to defend ourselves against them. So. The one reason is that orcas are up. Orcas, we call orcas the wolves of the sea because they are ferocious predators. They are very effective, very efficient, and downright damn dirty players in the ocean. And what they tend to do is they always work in pairs. So you'll never find an orca on its own. They always work in pairs. And they literally swim from the bottom underneath the shark. And they take out only the liver. Wow. I didn't know that. It's the richest part of the body. They don't want the rest of it. The rest of it's cartilaginous. Sharks are cartilaginous. They're made of cartilage. So they take out the most richest part and then they just take that and eat that. So, you know, the, the great whites, that's one of the reasons that, that we definitely know they've moved off. So they've left. I mean, we, we know we've tracked great whites that left Hansbar and went all the way to Australia and came back. So we know that they travel vast distances. So they've gone offshore. They've gone off. The other reason for their decline has once again like the penguins been their food source so south africa has a very strong longline shark fishery that fishes for smoothhound and soothsome sharks these are smaller sharks um they you know they, they're sharks because they're cartilaginous they're not sharks because they look like the great white they're much smaller um they s swim very high in the water and they're easily susceptible to being caught now the problem with soothsome and smooth hound sharks is they're the food of the great white, predominantly. But what we do is we catch it, and this is where things get a little bit praised. And, and, and actually, a little bit upsetting is that we catch it, but we export it all to Australia. And they eat it as flake and chips, what we would call our hake and chips. So our shark is actually their hake. And recently, there's been quite an uproar in the media around this, saying, do Australians actually know that they're eating South African sharks, which are actually the food for great whites, but also very important species within the South African ecosystem and the oceans and our waters. And, you know, on our program, which, which is the Southern African Sustainable Seafood Initiative, we've actually listed both those species of shark as red because they shouldn't be consumed. They shouldn't be eaten, uh, not by man at least, they should be eaten by sharks. And these two factors are I think are the two most important factors that are driving those great whites off our coast. I mean, occasionally 
you know, you will hear about a guy who captures a great white for its teeth or its jaws. But in South African waters, that's rare. That's not something, that's not a practice with our fishermen. It's, it, there's no tourism or there's no creation around that activity in South Africa. The two big ones are the orcas and obviously, uh, they're called, oh yes, port and starboard. Those are the names of the two orcas, uh, the port and starboard sides of a boat. So port and starboard. Uh, and the other one is the reduction in their food. So only two orcas coming into our waters have chased away all the great white sharks. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you know, Diana, how we actually realized their impact is we were finding a lot of what we call seven gill sharks. So these are called nurse sharks. They live in kelp off in False Bay. They are, I mean, you can swim by them when you're snorkeling. They are the most meek, cute little things. They they don't do much. They're big, but they kind of wander around the kelp and they hide between the kelp and placid, absolutely placid. And we started seeing a lot of them washing up on the rocks. And initially we thought, like, what's happening here? And then we started, you know, um, a lot of the colleagues that work on sharks and, and mammals started really doing some autopsies and looking at the sharks and we realized all the livers were missing. That was the common thing. And that's when we put two and two together and said, hey, yes, it's wonderful to now have orcas in the bay, but this is the impact they're having. I mean, a nurse shark, you could probably walk up to it and kiss it in the nose. It wouldn't, it wouldn't do anything. So to an orca, you know, it's, it's, it's doomed, so to speak, if it runs into an orca. So that's how we realized the impact of these orcas. And then we found a few, I think they found one or two great whites with livers missing um, in, in Mossel Bay area and that's when they realized actually these guys have a bigger impact than we assumed they would um you know and then obviously the, the fishing industry as well so i grew up on the south coast of KwaZulu natal and our ocean over there was famous for two things diving with ragged tooth sharks on the alawal shoal and the sardine run south africa has some great diving spots but probably the most famous are the alawal shoal and sudwana what marine animals can divers expect to find in these areas and what's so unique about the raggies on Alawal Shoal? So I have to admit, you know, being based in Cape Town, I'm biased towards Cape Town and, and it's there's amazing stuff to see in our waters down here, but it is freezing cold and you've got to wear a nine mile suit and be prepared to brace it. On the other side of our coastline in KZN or Kozulu Natal, we have Alawal Shoal and Sudwana. You have basically, it's like diving in warm dishwater or pea soup, as we'd like to say. So that's one big benefit is the water is warm. So you can really enjoy your dive and not focus on the fact that you're freezing. And as because that water is warm, that the biodiversity, or well, it's just a fancy word for biological diversity, is unbelievable in that area. So you, you know you're guaranteed to see a lot of things. Whereas on the western side of our coast, it'll take you a while to get to see something, you know. Um, so you'll see a myriad of reef fish, all the way from the diversity of a potato bass, all the way to something like a ragged shark or a tiger shark or a black tip shark. You'll see moray eels, you'll see sea breams, you'll see corals, you'll see fossilized dunes, you'll see unbelievable canyons and crevices just covered with sea urchins and feather stars and basket stars. Um, you'll see a myriad of starfish, you'll see sponges and corals and every little anemone that lives on that coral and every little um, clownfish that lives in the anemone on that coral. So the color spectrum is huge. 
you'll see a whole range of different reef shrimps. Um, you'll see a whole range of different little fish. Your very characteristic aquarium type looking fish, you know, your arches and your moonies and that. You won't necessarily see those on the West Coast, but on, in Sudwana and Aliwal, you'll definitely see them. Boxfish, pufferfish, an unbelievable diversity filled with more colors than you can ever imagine in our rainbow. So you're guaranteed seeing all of those. And you see this, the three shark species, which is tigers, black tip. And if you're lucky in Sudwana, you get to swim with whale sharks, which are those big sharks, little spotties. Now, giving them a name shark is a misnomer because they're actually just filter feeders and they don't actually belong to the, to the shark species. But, you know, as we say, when you see them, respect the distance and let them swim past you because they're very placid and they're very calm and they love, they love to see divers around. Um, and they, they, they very, you know, raggies, tigers, they, they're harmless. You know, regis look ferocious with all the teeth that you kind of see and you think, oh my God, it's coming towards me. But if you look properly, you'll notice that the rows of teeth are turned slightly inwards and that's just one way it gets its predators. So what makes regis very, very, very different from any other shark is two big things. The first thing is regis have a liver. They don't have a swim bladder. So like the great white, they're actually more related to the great white than they are to the tigers, by the way, because they have a liver. Most other sharks have what we call a swim bladder, which is like an air sac, and that fills and helps with their buoyancy. And because they have that, they'll actually come to the surface and do a gulp of air because it allows them to stay quite buoyant, which is why you get sharks, great whites, that breach in Cape Town, where they, you know, they jump in the air and they catch the seals and things like that. If you have a swim bladder, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do that because of the change in pressure, your swim bladder would explode. Raggies have a swim bladder. So they would actually um, be able to do that. The other thing is they make mating quite an elaborate affair. <laughs> so when you see a male and female raggy um, courting and then ready to mate, there is a lot of tumbling and noise making and biting. And, and so much so that the, the female shark actually comes off the worst because he bites her to be able to, um, to deposit his sperm in her. And the reason they do that is that raggies don't lay eggs. And this is the other unique thing about them. So most sharks will lay an egg and very often people call it a mermaid's purse because it looks like a little purse and, it's got, and then it hooks, it has tendrils and it hooks around seagrass or around kelp and that's where the little shark grows inside the yolk sac and then pops out of an egg. Pretty much, you know, chicken kind of egg situation. Reggae is not so much. The sperm is deposited in the female and it grows inside the female and she gives birth to live little baby sharks. Yeah, which is like the best thing ever because you, you don't see that in a shark species or in a fish species, you know. And then the, the thing about those baby sharks is she doesn't look after them. She literally lets them go off. And the gestation period is about nine months and she doesn't give birth to many. So it's probably one, maybe two, if you're lucky, three pups. But not many, many egg cases like with other shark species. And they're the cutest little sharks you'll ever see when they come out um, of, of mum. And then they go off on their own and start growing. So they definitely are a very, very unique species of shark found in our waters. Yeah, and very interesting to see divers love because they look, as you say, so ferocious. But in fact, they're, they're okay. very calm. Uh, free diving has also become very popular in the ocean around Cape Town these days. I recently watched the Netflix documentary film, My Octopus Teacher, which is a really touching story about this filmmaker who he free dives every day in the kelp forests of Cape Town. 
and he encounters a little octopus. As a marine biologist, what did you think of the film? I really enjoyed it for two reasons, is that it is such an instrumental piece of education around octopus. People do not realize that octopi, octopuses, I guess you would say one or the other, are unbelievably intelligent creatures. They are, um, we, we all, I would, I would strongly suggest that octopus are sentient in that they recognize another octopus in themselves because of how their behavior structures. I mean, they, they can undo jars, they can follow mazes, they can do puzzles, um, they can lock and open doors, um, they can find their way through a certain set of obstacles you give them, they can change, they're the only species that can change color and texture. So they can make themselves look like kelp. They can make them, they have something most other creatures don't have, which is the ability to mimic. So an octopus can mimic another species and actually make itself look like a sea snake or make itself look like a fish. Um, and that's a very rare, very, very rare behavior because it's recognized, ah, that looks like that. It acts like that. So if I act like that, I will catch my prey. So that it already tells you this cognition and some kind of processing helping in. So octopuses are unbelievably intelligent and my octopus teacher brought that through beautifully. The fact that that octopus recognized him every day would go towards him, had established a relationship with him, tells you that she was able to say, oh, okay, I know this chap, he's friendly. I'll go and greet him. He's nice to hang around. I'm learning stuff from him. He's learning stuff from me. So from an education stance, I think that the film was amazing, as well as from kind of highlighting the coast. You know, um, not so many people know about our wonderful octopus species on in our False Bay area, in on the Western Cape Coast. And octopus is prolifically, unfortunately, eaten in Asian countries uh, <laughs> up the West Coast of Africa. It is consumed unsustainably unfortunately. So Octopus Teacher basically brought all of those elements to a very, I mean, the Netflix audience spans more than just South Africans and Africans. It's a wide, it's a global audience. So I'm very glad. What I'm hoping it hasn't done, um, which is the unintended consequence of now everybody wanting an octopus as a pet. And we saw that with uh, Finding Nemo. So I don't know if you know this, but as soon as that movie went viral, every child wanted a blue tang, which is what Dory was made of. And people actually then started clearing reefs of the blue tang so that they could have it in the aquarium trade. And it became a massive problem because the blue tang is quite important in the reef ecosystem. And the sales were just going through the roof of everybody wanting a blue tang. Um, because they wanted a dory. So on that side, I'm hoping it hasn't spurred, which it was an unintended consequence of that. And I know Disney actually put out a statement around people saying, don't support illegal aquarium trades. You know, you don't have to have a pet blue tang. Watch the movie, you know, go to an aquarium, enjoy that. And they actually did a little bit of work around that. And I think with my octopus teacher, you know, there is that possibility that it becomes an unintended consequence. Uh, but I, and I'm hoping not. Um, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, you know, just to see that engagement, to look at that beautiful, and to encourage people to go into the ocean. Um, you know, in that sense, people from all walks of life. You don't necessarily have to always enjoy it from the beach. You know, get your fins on, get your mask on, go into the water, 
snorkel, look at the diversity, the richness, because if we can get people to really enjoy that, to respect it, we're going to get them to conserve it. You know, you, you don't know, you won't conserve what you don't know. Indeed. And so, we, you know, that's what octopus teaching it for me. We've spoken a little bit, Pavs, about the declining fish populations when we spoke about the penguins and about the uh, the sharks. Um, but uh, what about what what are what are we as South Africans doing to protect our fish, both for for recreation and also for use as food? So you know, overfishing is a global problem, and it's it's not unique to South Africa. Um, we have very good policy in place in South Africa. Where we fall short is in monitoring, compliance, and enforcement, and that's been our biggest fault in this country. We have, we do, we have the science that backs up the policy. We have really good regulations, but we fall short when we have to enforce those regulations and actually take somebody or some company to task around this. So, so that's one of our biggest problems. What we've been doing in South Africa, and, and, and I'm grateful for it, is we've taken a very precautionary approach around some of our bigger fisheries. Um, and we've made some smart management decisions, but not for all fisheries. And I have to put that caveat there. There have been for some fisheries where we have actually made very poor decisions and those fisheries are un and therefore reaching what we would call overfished or unsustainable areas. The other, the other area where we've worked really, really hard in is your consumption. So uh, 16 years ago, WWF with a whole range of partners developed something called SASI, which is the Southern African Sustainable Seafood Initiative. And that is aimed at consumers, restaurants, retailers and suppliers and it gives them a tool and a mechanism to make smart choices around the seafood they consume it's a very it's a very easy system we scientifically assess a species from a specific fishery and then we either put it as red orange and green green meaning yes enjoy it eat it it's good it's sustainably fished it's looked after the populations are doing well it's well managed orange means ah think twice about it and there are some concern but you can eat it red means the species is in serious, serious trouble. Please don't eat it. Please can you avoid it at any cost? Um, and, and obviously, you know, get people to make those smart choices, get restaurants to only serve the green and orange, get uh, retailers and suppliers to only sell um, the green and orange. So we've, we've had that program running for 16 years. The retailers all, so, so five of the six big retailers have made commitments to do that. And their commitments should come to maturity bit from 2025 onwards, which means if you go into a picket bay with spa or Woolworths or a food lovers market, whatever you choose will be sustainable. So there's lots of efforts of work being there. We also put a lot of energy into when a recommendation is made by government. So we work very closely with industry. I mean, industry has to realize that if they don't employ responsible practices, if they don't worry about the seabirds and the turtles and the sharks, if they don't conserve their energies in terms of how much they're catching, um, you know, they're going to run out of fish. And that sustainability makes good business sense if you want longevity in your business. So we've put a lot of energy in working with industry to get them. And some of them have really made some major stri strides in terms of their, how they catch, when they catch, where they catch, putting observers on board, what type of gear they use, whether they scare birds away, etc. Others, not so much. So we're definitely trying to address the, um, the issues around overfishing. 
We still struggle a little with illegal fishing, unfortunately, and illegal fishing in South Africa is two very scary faces. The one is a fisherman who is so strapped, who is so poor because of our history, very marginalized fishermen, um, you know, coming from all the apartheid time when they weren't given proper rights, who's actually catching and poaching to feed a family. And, and, and that for me is not, you know, that's not illegal, that's him trying to make a living, eat out some kind of living. And then there's, unfortunately in South Africa, we see very, very criminalized, syndicated games of poaching, where it, it's, you know, it's not even staying in this country when it's caught. It's caught, it's put on another ship and it goes mostly to Asia, Central Asia, you know, Eastern Asia, and it's, it's flogged. It's big business, it's lots of money, it's, it's, it's very intertwined with other social issues like illegal um, prostitution, human trafficking, child trafficking, slavery on ships. It's, it's a monster. And South Africa is part of that big, big, is a cog in that big machine or in that monster. So us actually trying to deal with it, I think would be quite scary. And we take everybody from Department of Treasury to any, every NGO to any enforcement agency to deal with that big monster. Um, and where we can, where we have to concentrate our efforts is on the smaller fishers, is on how do we get them to be sustainable? How do we get the industries that we know that are legal and abiding for them to be responsible in their practices? How do we afford everybody the right to access to the oceans? You know, things like that. So we, we're doing things in the right way. We've declared 5% um, of our coast is protected, which is great. You know, we've made a commitment to actually get to 10%, so we're halfway there. Um, you know, and, and we've had uh, the late Minister Edwa Malewa, she was great. She pushed for that 5%, and it, it was it was materialized after years and years of work. What we need to do now is manage those protected areas, look after them, ensure that nobody fishes in them, understand why we have protected areas, not marginalize the communities that live in those areas, and work together on a co-management structure. And I think that's something we're working very hard to do. So there are good points to what South Africa is doing, but there are elements that we need to be cognizant of, like enforcement, like monitoring, like compliance. And then I think the last one would, for me, would be a comment on recreational fishes. You know, recreational fishes, you're not fishing for a livelihood, you're fishing for fun. And that's what the ocean affords us, which is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. But I always say to recreational fishes, you know, limit your catch, don't catch your limits um because you don't need six tuna <laughs> let's be honest you know your regulation might say you can catch six tuna don't catch you what are you going to do with six tuna you know you know limit your catch say okay my family can eat two and i can give my neighbor one or whatever or i can eat one my neighbor can eat one catch two you know leave the rest in the ocean let them you know enjoy life for a little longer so you know limit your catch don't catch your limits kind of thing so so that's something a message that we're very strongly putting out to recreational fishes as well. So that their children will be able to catch those fish as well because if, if there's no tuna yeah. left in, in the sea, then that's not an activity that can be passed down uh, from generation to generation. And what people, the other thing people can do, and I've I've really loved what you've done at Sassy. Um, I used to, you used to have an SMS, uh, you would SMS the name of a fish and it would reply to say whether the fish is green, orange or red. Um, but recently, well not so recently, but I've been using the website more and I think tourists, uh, travelers to South Africa are also able to use that. So if you're in a restaurant or somewhere where they're serving fish and you want to know, is this fish a sustainably caught fish? It's great to be able to use the 
the SASE app and I'll link it in the show notes so that people can can start using that because it's the best way to know whether what your behavior with eating is actually helping or harming the ocean. Absolutely. I mean, the app is so user-friendly. You can download it. It's free for basically iOS and Google Play Store. So delete it when you leave the country. You know, if you're not going to use it after that, it would have cost you very little in terms of data. And we've designed it that way so that, you know, you can just use it. And if you really want the detail, if you really want to know the detail, go to our website or send us an email. I mean, FishMS works one well, but if, you, if you're in South Africa and you, you know, know the number and things like that, I would really recommend that you just download the app and use the app or even go onto our Facebook platforms, Diana. I mean, we get so many requests of people that send us things via our Instagram post or our Facebook post. And, you know, we, we then answer immediately and say, yes, 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 do this, do that. We have a fantastic social media person. She's always online. She's a millennial, so she's always online. <laughs> so, you know, she'll respond very quickly to any questions or curious people have. And you're making a smart decision that has long, 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 long consequences. You you know, such far-reaching consequences. And it's such a small choice as to whether to eat this or not eat this. To move to another marine species, which I'm a huge fan of, turtles, um, Isimangaliso Wetland Park is a breeding area for loggerhead and leatherback turtles. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about these beautiful creatures, Pavs, and why the leatherback turtle in particular has experienced such a catastrophic decline in their population numbers? Absolutely. So you're right. You know, the ocean is bound with these phenomenal creatures. They are, there's just so many you and I can talk about, you know. But turtles are like penguins. They are so charismatic. They have a place in your heart. Just, I think it's those droopy eyes. I don't know what it is. Every turtle species I have ever had the privilege of working with has these very watery, droopy eyes that kind of say, give me a hug kind of thing, you know. And South African coasts um, have at least three or four turtle species. That, that come across our coast. Um, Izimangaliso is the breeding ground, so what that means is the turtle will actually climb up onto the beach, dig up the sand, lay their eggs, close it off, go back to the water, and then when the egg when the eggs hatch, the hatchlings make their way. So all turtle species are actually unfortunately in serious trouble, but particularly for leatherbacks, it's been a few things. The first thing has been their habitat destruction. A lot of the environment, the coastal environments, which leatherbacks will make their way to lay their eggs, people have developed on. So they will build homes, they've built jetties, strip malls, all of that. So immediately, habitat shrinkage, habitat destruction, a turtle will not make its way onto a beach where it doesn't feel that its eggs will survive. The other issue with that is pollution. Turtles are highly susceptible to any type of pollution. And yeah, I'm talking about plastic pollution, I'm talking about toxins, pathogens, anything in the water, oil, anything in the water, turtles don't respond very well. They're also, unfortunately, very often caught in fishing gear. They're caught in both fishing gear while a company's fishing, and leatherbacks are big, they're lumberous. They will get caught in fishing gear, but often leatherbacks will get caught in what we call ghost gear. And ghost gear is fishing gear that is broken, fallen off, and is now lying in the ocean. Remember, a fishing net still fishes, even though it might not be attached to a boat. There's just nobody there to pull the net off. And very often, these, these large turtles will get tangled in those nets, and they'll die. 
Um, you know, so is that the other thing is our pollution on beaches. So, for example, we're good. We try our best to keep our beaches clean in South Africa. You know, our city tries their best in, in the various uh, cities to clean the beaches. Not so much where other leatherbacks will go uh, and breed. They're covered in plastic and rubbish. To, for them to make their way on land, such big lumbering creatures, past all the plastic and the garbage is exhausting. And the, most of the time, the animal has to dig through all of that rubbish before it can find viable ground to lay the eggs. Eggs are also very susceptible to temperature. So you, we need to be very careful with climate change and days that are very hot or days that are very cold will affect the rate at which those leatherback or loggerhead eggs will hatch. So, you know, if the temperatures are all screwy and wonky, the eggs won't hatch. And then finally, in a lot of African countries and some Asian countries, predation, people eat, they eat the turtles. So they will, they, if they catch a turtle, they will eat it and they eat the eggs. So if you go up our east coast, uh, you know, in our eastern countries, uh, past northern Mozambique and even in some areas of Mozambique, they will dig up turtle eggs um, and they'll consume it. And I mean, you know, one family taking out a hundred eggs, that, that entire population is gone. So there's all these factors that really, really impact leatherbacks and other turtles. Um, and turtles are, you know, they, they're not agile. They're not lumbric to kind of get gear off them or to move around. So they actually suffer those consequences rather drastically. Um, and as a result, they, they also, they're also long breeders. You know, they take a while to come to a shore to return eggs. So if anything has impacted them, they won't return to uh, a beach to lay eggs. So unfortunately, tur turtles will be impacted by any type of activity that disrupts their lives. The one part about the South African coastline that I also love is the beautiful beaches that we have. And the great thing about our beaches are that they're rel relatively uncrowded compared to some of the beaches I've been on in Thailand, for example, or in Europe. Our beaches are uncrowded and, and really unspoiled beauty. I was in the Eastern Cape recently and those beaches just have these vast, uh, vast sand dunes and um, just so much space and, you know, like a lot of wildlife on the beaches, um, vegetation growing through the, through the dunes and, and fortunately not too many houses and human habitation right on the beach. So Eastern Cape is incredible, but of course we've got all the beaches of Cape Town, all the the east coasts of southern africa past durban isimangliso so yeah i was very fortunate to grow up near a beach and um yeah, there's just so many beautiful activities you can do like swimming kayaking uh, snorkeling fishing all of those kind of recreational activities on our beaches uh, do you have a favorite family beach location for your family holidays pubs i definitely do so if i'm on the west coast it's a little hidden gem of a beach just between Cape Point and Simonstown called Murdoch Beach. Okay. It's, it's actually kind of, it's, it's quite a little, I should call it a little cove. You kind of walk down these stairs and then it's hidden by these boulders. It is always warm in that little bay and we don't know why. And occasionally you get a little penguin coming from boulders past you as you're faffing around in the water. And then you kind of swim off and, and oh, there's too much noise here. And, and it's also a family beach, which I like, you know, so it's not, it's not, I mean, Camps Bay is beautiful, but it's full and it, there's tourists and there's hustle and there's bustle and there's traffic. And, you know, there's a lot of noise happening and lots of expanses of beach. This is a little bit of heaven, um, Murdoch Beach. And I really enjoy 
going there with family and friends and just having a little picnic and, and swimming. And then if I'm on the KZN coast, it's usually up towards Sodwana. I love Sodwana. It is Cape Vidal. Sodwana is my favorite areas up there. Um, it, just to go snorkeling and, you know, to enjoy the water. And you can spend hours snorkeling in Sodwana and Cape Vidal. And you don't have to snorkel out far, hey? A couple of meters into the water and you've got this entire world in front of you. Um, and you can enjoy yourself. So, so definitely enjoy those two beaches. And you're right. We have beautiful beaches um, in this country, and we have to keep it that way. So, you know, when, I, when I'm at the beach, I'm very cognizant of making sure I take my plastic with me. I do not take polystyrene to the beach because I don't know if you've noticed, whenever people are at the beach with polystyrene, they break it into little pieces, which is, I think, out of habit that we break polystyrene, and then you've made microplastics. So, you know, make sure you don't take polystyrene to the beach and things like that. So I'm always collecting and I always take an extra bag or two and I pick up stuff around those two beaches because I want to maintain that environment, not just for me on, and future generations, but for the ocean that I love so much and that I've studied, you know, because it will eventually wash into the ocean. Yeah, you mentioned Cape Vidala. We were also there recently and just loved it. It is, it is so unspoiled. And the, the snorkeling, as you say, you, you just walk into the sea and there's that, beautiful reefs right there so you, we've mentioned a couple of really nice beaches for for people to go and explore um the other way to to find out more about marine life in a kind of a comfortable setting i guess are the are aquariums and we've got two world-class aquariums ushaka which is in durban and the two oceans aquarium in cape town um do you do you like aquariums do you think that they are great places for people especially families to learn about the sea and sea life within within the ocean? Absolutely, Diana. I think aquariums have a very important role to play. Because remember, not everybody want, has, has the same respect for the oceans that we have. Some people are, are genuinely terrified of going into the water, um, you know, and the aquariums bring that to them. The other thing is aquariums are wonderful places of education, wonderful places of awareness building, of you know, teaching and learning and, and sharing experiences that you wouldn't normally, not, not everybody, not all South Africans can afford to go snorkeling on a boat or buy snorkeling gear, you know, um, but they can still enjoy what our oceans have to present. And I think that both Ushaka and Two Oceans do a phenomenal job in terms of their signage, in terms of their educational, their tours, their walks. I mean, I've been to so many of them at, to both aquariums um, and they're captivating. You know, they get you to think and ask questions around the marine environment. I've seen children run around there with most animated faces. You know, you, you can't, you, I'd love to be able to harness that energy and bottle it so that they, when they become adults, they remember that because that's how much energy, enthusiasm and respect and love they had for nature once. And please take it with you when you become an adult is usually what I want to say. And, you know, for a facility and an environment to create that, it says to be something special. And I know that both Ushaka and Two Oceans Aquarium do that. They also put a lot of energy and effort into what they're doing. You know, they, they're not, it's not an, it's not an aquarium for an aquarium's sake. They, they definitely have very strong objectives around, you know, we're here to educate. We're here to build understanding, to build respect, to nurture people's thinking, to get people to change their behavior around what they do with the ocean and the environment. I mean, I know with both of them, they have a bit of fresh water. They have 
river systems and they talk about snakes and frogs and i mean we know what a bad rap snakes have just generally in the world they're you know people kill first and think later you know so a lot of around um that and the importance of having those stable ecosystems and how we can bring nature to be part of the human society and that's what the aquariums do i think they 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 bring that message very effectively they also they showcase to international tourists what we have to offer very often people will visit an aquarium and then they'll go actually you know what i really want to go snorkeling now you know so they, they they feed off other industries they help other industries and then people go and snorkel or they go on boat based whale watching or whatever based on what they've seen in an aquarium and you know the aquariums kind of put in the right stuff like make sure you you know you you're not irresponsible when you're at the beach make sure that you know you you use a reputable company if you want to go cage diving or if you want to go on a boat based whale watching you know ask questions if people throw things overboard you know stop people from polluting um you know make smart choices i know both aquariums are very strong supporters of sassy they have exhibits around sassy um you know get people to see they might not hear about sassy in that way but they might visit the two oceans and see an entire display on sassy and for example west coast rock lobster you know and gets people kind of knowledgeable on sassy and things like that and I, we're very lucky because our aquariums work i mean i've been there during the holiday season they're open all the time with all sorts of activities and holiday things for the kids and puppet shows and marches and penguin waddles and walks and you know so so they're definitely creating enough I would say so much further around the ocean so that we get that education build up we get people involved in our oceans um I also know that the Two Oceans Aquarium has been in, very involved in developing a school curriculum to make marine sciences part of a grade what's it, 10 11 and 12 school curriculum so they're doing some amazing work in the education space as well um for an aquarium Pubs, where can people find out more about the work you do with the Worldwide Fund for Nature? Yeah, so the, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, which is WWF, and it's not the Wrestling Federation as many people think we are. Um, I have to give you a little anecdote. So there was a, I think in 2018, WWE was coming to South Africa, and we had to fin at least 15 calls a day <laughs> because people were phoning us for tickets. <laughs> Say, wrong organization we're the panda we're the panda yeah. we're not the undertaker we're the panda <laughs> we're not john cena we're the panda yeah. it was it, it became a standing joke in the organization <gasps> but um so you know we're a massive organization we're in over 200 countries and south africa has its own office which is great most info all of our information is available on our website which is very easy it's www.org.za you can also follow us on all of the social platforms, WWF South Africa on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, you know, you can pretty much look us up just about anywhere and, and you'll find information. But I would I would recommend our website um, and definitely our social handles because that's where you can engage with us, learn what we're doing. I mean, we work in just about all of the spaces. We work in land, we work in wildlife. So we do lots of things around rhinos and elephants. We work in ocean space. We work with communities. Um, we work with freshwater, we work in our strategic water source areas, so we do a lot of work around freshwater, drought systems, access to water, uh, we work with farmers, sure, we work in climate change space, so there's lots of pockets of work and if you're interested in any of that, you know, give us a shout and we can always have a very engaging discussion or we can chat and you can come and see what we do as well. 
Great. Thank you so much for your time today, Pavs. It's been an absolute pleasure, Diane, and thank you for affording me the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode. To find out more about what we do at Leopard, visit leopard.voyage.